On the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in mid-heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded a human voice, for the Lord fought for Israel. Yes, we are going to go there in this episode of Retelling the Bible. What do we do? with that story of the time in the book of Joshua when the sun stood still in the sky. This story, as we have it, was probably not a big problem for the people who first heard it and told it. They thought of the sun as a light that simply moved across the dome of the sky. The idea that God could have stopped it from moving for a while would have been miraculous, but it seemed at least conceivable. This story presents many more challenges for modern readers, however. We live with a post-Copernican understanding of the solar system. We know that the Earth is spinning and simultaneously orbiting around the Sun. So, for us, even if we might confess that God could presumably do whatever God chose to do, we cannot help but wonder why Joshua and company didn't go spinning away, impelled by inertia, when the earth suddenly stopped rotating. I mean, do we need to believe that God suspended all of the immutable laws of physics just in order to allow the Israelites to kill more Amorites? The original readers would not have had to worry about any of that. But how can we escape the question? But that is actually only the biggest problem that we encounter by trying to tell this story. There is also the problem that all of the archaeological evidence we can find indicates that there was no massive conquest of Canaan by the Israelites. What's more, the Bible itself tells us that some of the victories described in this passage simply didn't happen. For example, one of the enemies that Joshua defeats in this passage is Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem. And yet, the book of Samuel tells us that Jerusalem remained in the hands of the Jebusites right up until the time when it was conquered by King David, generations later. This is, in short, a very problematic story for all kinds of reasons. And that is before you get into all of the implied genocide that Joshua's people seem to be committing. What do we do 
with a story like that? We retell it, of course. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 6.11 Josh versus the Sun As the people of Israel sought to possess the land that they believed that Yahweh, their God, had given to them. They were often tempted to do what invaders often do, and form alliances with some of the people that they were seeking to dispossess. You can imagine why. People often feel more secure when there are other nations that have their back. But the people of Israel learned, especially in the case of the Gibeonites, that alliances didn't always give you the security that you hoped they would. The Gibeonites were a very warlike people, a people who had such a strong military culture that every male among them was a warrior. Like the famous warriors of Sparta, they lived for nothing but battle. So, when they encountered them, it is rather understandable that the Israelites considered that an alliance with them might be a better option than entering into a never-ending war of attrition. So they made an alliance of mutual defense. But the leader of the Israelites, the mighty Joshua, might have been a great warrior but he didn't really seem to know all that much about negotiating treaties. So the treaty that was concluded looked like this. If anyone attacked the Gibeonites, the Israelites would have to come to their defense. But for their part, the Gibeonites only promised that they would disarm and that they would not attack the Israelites you may have noticed that there is a big problem with that sort of deal. But apparently, Joshua didn't. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, for their part, were really good when it came to making treaties. It was how they had survived so long in the divided land of Canaan. And so, when they heard about the treaty between Gibeon and Israel, they went to work to make their own plans. They made a pact to fight together, swearing in the names of their gods, Yarich, the god of the moon, and Shamash, who was the sun. 
they performed sacrifices and made oaths that if they did not stand together against the Israelites, their gods might do to them what they had done to the sacrificial animals. So they purchased the support of their gods and of each other in the battles that were to come. And then, since the five kings understood the duplicity of the Gibeonites like Joshua had not, they decided to invade their territory rather than to strike the Israelites directly. The Gibeonites didn't even bother trying to defend themselves. They quickly sent off word to the Israelite commander, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who live in the hill country are gathered against us. And so it was that Joshua and his people were forced by the promises that they had made to fight alone against all five kingdoms and to do it in unfamiliar territory. When Joshua, at his home base of Gilgal, received the plea from the Gibeonites, he called an assembly of all the people where he sacrificed and sought a word from Yahweh. An oracle came forth and spoke the word of Yahweh. Do not fear them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them shall stand before you. And so, pumped up by this promise of support, the Israelite warriors ran all the way from Gilgal to Gibeon in one night. Hold on! Hold on! Wait just a minute! We haven't even gotten to the sun and moon standing still. And I'm already having a problem with the simple geography of this story. Gilgal to Gibeon is a 26-kilometer distance. And that is as the crow flies. When you have to go around obstacles and find roads and paths, it is probably closer to 40 kilometers. That is almost as far as the distance from the plains of Marathon to the city of Athens. And it was uphill all the way. And you're telling me that this ancient Bronze Age army went all the way from Gilgal to Gibeon in a one-night forced march? And we're still in good enough shape to fight a battle the next morning? Truth be told, if they actually did accomplish such a feat, it would have been a landmark achievement in military history. Armies in that era could maybe, maybe make 16 kilometers a day. We're told that the armies of Alexander the Great could travel as fast as 20 kilometers a day. And that was a stunning achievement that took his enemies off guard 
and allowed him to basically conquer the whole world. And yet here I'm being told that Joshua had doubled that feat centuries before? And this is the first that I'm hearing about it? And uh, hold on, I'm just looking ahead at this story a bit, and it, it looks like in the battle they fought immediately after this unheard of march, the Israelites pursued their enemies all the way from Gibeon to Azekah, and then to Makedah, and that is a distance of another 50 kilometers. So that's maybe 90 kilometers in one 24-hour period. Hmm. I'm beginning to understand the need for time to stand still. At least I'm understanding why the poor warriors in Joshua's army might have felt as if that day would never end. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to return to Joshua and his army as the sun rises after their record-breaking, fully-armed marathon run. Joshua slipped away from his army as they wheezed and panted from their extreme overnight exertion. He crept up the hill and peered over the ridge to look at the army of the Amorites with the rosy light of the rising sun at his back. Their tents were spread out before the gates of the city. Joshua gave a low whistle as he estimated the sheer numbers of the enemy. But then he saw something that gave him some pause. He urgently motioned for his lieutenant, Caleb, to come up beside him. Yes, Josh, what, what is it? Look down there, Caleb. Joshua whispered urgently. Tell me, do you see what I see? Caleb pulled out a rag to mop his brow and squinted toward the walls of the city. What do you mean, those, uh, those black spots that are dancing in the air? He finally asked. And Joshua looked at him sharply and handed him the skin that he wore at his belt. Here, man. Drink some wine. You look like you're about to pass out. No. I mean down there in the camp of the Amorites. I'm pretty sure that those are the shrines of their gods, Yarich and Shamash. They have been set up in the place of honor in the center of their camp. That means that they are counting on the gods of the moon and the sun to fight for them against us. Caleb shrugged. Every tribe, every nation he had ever encountered on the battlefield had brought their gods with them, just like the Israelites looked to Yahweh to support them in their fights. Yeah? So? So, 
how do you think that they would react if they knew that their gods had abandoned them? The fight would go right out of them, wouldn't it? Now, look over there. Caleb turned to look behind him, where Joshua was pointing. He immediately noticed that not only was the sunrise an ominous red color, it was shining through some of the biggest and darkest clouds that he had ever seen. It was plain that a massive storm would soon descend upon the enemy camp. He smiled grimly at Joshua. How can the sun and the moon fight for them when they can't even see them through the cloud cover? It only took minutes for Joshua to persuade his exhausted troops to attack the enemy. He did it by convincing them that they wouldn't really need to fight anyways, that their god would fight for them. They think that their gods, Yarich and Shamash, will save them, but they are no match for the power of our god. I mean, look at those clouds. Those are the clouds of Yahweh, the rider on the storm. And they are going to blot out the sun and the moon. Do you hear that thunder? That is Yahweh's voice. Your victory is certain. And as the warriors swept over the crest of the hill to descend on the army of the five kings, Joshua sang a hymn to his gods. Sing to El, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to Yahweh. O rider in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Listen, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to El, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. El bursts forth from your sanctuary, El of Israel, who gives power and strength to his people. When the armies of the five kings looked up to see the Israelites descending upon them, their enemy forces barely even registered. They were looking instead over the heads of the Israelite warriors, for there was the most terrifying sky that they had ever seen. The clouds had taken on a strange hue. They were not merely gray, but black and with a strange greenish tinge. The sight stirred an ancestral fear deep down inside them. And as they saw the clouds blot out the light of the sun on one side of the horizon, and as they approached the moon near the other, they were also left with a deep theological question. Was it possible that the storm god of the Israelites was more powerful than their gods? It did not take very much for the exultant Israelites to rout the Amorites. They quickly broke 
and began a very disorderly retreat. As they did, the clouds finally broke, and hail began to fall down upon their retreating backs, which only added to their distress. The Israelites were frankly stunned by their sudden victory. They stopped, exhausted by all their exertions, and stared in confusion as their enemies fled. But Joshua was an experienced enough commander to know that this was not the time for them to lose their initiative. As tired as they were, he needed them to press their advantage. He quickly scrambled to the top of a nearby rock and began to speak to Yahweh on his army's behalf. Yahweh, he cried, you have already defeated the enemy that fights against us. Shamash, stand still, his mouth agape before the gates of Gibeon. And Yarich is powerless in the valley of Ijalon. You alone are still fighting Yahweh, so let your people take vengeance on these your enemies. And with that, he turned and ran towards the fleeing Amorites with a wild cry. And, after only a moment's delay, the Israelite fighters took up the cry and ran behind him. It was late in the afternoon, after many exhausting hours of hard pursuit, when one of the soldiers leaned over to tap the shoulder of his mate. Hey, Jashar, he said. Is it just me or is this afternoon never going to end? Yeah, man, I know what you mean, replied Jashar. But I'm still feeling pretty pumped up by Joshua's speech earlier. I really like killing these enemies. I feel like I could do this all day. In fact, I was even thinking that I should start a, a book. A book? What's that? Well, it's this thing where you record the sounds that come out of people's mouths on pieces of parchment, and you, well, well, I'm pretty sure someone's going to invent them someday, and I'm going to write down a collection of war poetry. So I've got to remember that song of Joshua, and make sure that I include it. The sun stands still before Gibeon, and the moon is frozen with fright in the valley of Ijalon. It was something like that wasn't it? Yeah, I think you've got it, replied his friend. Say, Jashar, he went on after a moment's puzzled thought, if such a thing were really possible, and the words of Joshua could be trapped on a piece of parchment like you say, and then somehow released years from now for people to hear them 
What would they think? I mean, would they understand that Yahweh had defeated the gods of the Amorites? Or, um, or would they think uh, that the sun and the moon actually stopped moving across the sky? Jashar thought the idea was pretty funny too. And the two friends shared a good laugh. Well, all around them, the slaughter continued. There are some really big problems with the story of the Battle of Joshua and the Five Kings. Problems that only start with the total lack of archaeological evidence for the conquest of Canaan. We have geographical distances being covered by armies that are absolutely bonkers. We have the fact that the Bible itself insists that these territories did not come under Israelite control until much later. And we have... Um, what else was it? Oh yeah, we have the earth suddenly ceasing to rotate in the middle of the day. What could possibly be going on in this story? I rather doubt that the origins of this story can be traced back to a certain battle that took place at a certain moment in time. The story is, in my opinion, more theological than it is historical. It is about how God will fight for the people of Israel using the forces of nature. It is about Yahweh's dominance over the gods of other peoples. And as for the sun standing still in the sky, I suspect that that began as a bit of poetry. Poetry that was preserved and written down in the book of Jashar, which was, by the way, a real book that was used as a source by the writers of the book of Joshua. This book is mentioned a couple of times in the Bible, and it was, of course, compiled much later than the supposed time of Joshua. But the thing is, that there was nothing really extraordinary about the original poem. It's very much like some other poems that we find in the Bible. Take, for example, this hymn of praise to Yahweh in the third chapter of the book of Habakkuk. The mountains saw you and writhed. A torrent of water swept by. The deep gave forth its voice. The sun raised high its hands. The moon stood still in its exalted place. Or take this description of the battle fought by Deborah and Barak in Judges. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The onrushing torrent, the torrent Kishon. Now, as far as I know, no one who read those battle poems ever thought that they were intended to mean that the sun, moon, and stars, whether understood as heavenly bodies or deities, were literally doing those things. It is just taken for granted that these are poetic descriptions of some sort of connection between Yahweh 
and the forces of nature. But somehow, in the book of Jashar, or perhaps more likely when the poetry in that book was transformed into a narrative, somebody who was telling a rollicking tale of an incredible battle decided to interpret that poetry in a surprisingly literal way. And people have struggled to explain how the sun could have stood still in the sky ever since. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with someone else who would appreciate it. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is Unholy Night and Stormfront. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com. The sound effects I used are available at zapsplat.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible. And I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.